Hello, this is Austin Philbin, host of the Powering Independence podcast and Chief Administrative Officer at Dynasty Financial Partners. We have a very special episode today, what it means to be a Schwabi, examining the powerful culture of Charles Schwab through the stories of its people. We'll be talking about things like culture and why that's important for new and candidly any business owner. We'll ask each one of our guests a piece of advice that they may have given themselves or wanted to give themselves early in their careers. And our guests today are Brad Lawson, who's a Vice President and National Managing Director of the Relationship Management Group at Charles Schwab Advisory Services. Jerry Cobb, also a Managing Director and within the Business Consulting Group at Charles Schwab. And Leslie Tabor, a Managing Director within Business Consulting at Charles Schwab. We're looking forward to a very powerful and engaging episode. Hello and welcome to the Powering Independence podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin. And today we have a very, very, very special episode, what it means to be a Schwabi, examining the powerful culture of Charles Schwab through the stories of its people. And I will be joined uh, for the first time remotely by three different guests in three different locations. This is going to be a great one. Very excited. Uh, Let's start with... um, just a little bit about each one of you. So maybe if you could tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, and why to you, Charles Schwab is such a great place to work. Why don't we start with Brad? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, I love having a more of a philosophical conversation like this, um, just around the business. And um, it's been it's been a great partnership we've had with Dynasty, but to be able to step back and really um, talk shop like this is a, a much appreciated break in the day. Um, so I'm Brad Lawson. I do lead our relationship management teams around the country, and I've been working with advisors in that capacity for about 23 years now. And I've seen Schwab grow from a very small organization to um, arguably a very, very large organization. And one of the things we've really strived for in the business is how do we stay small to each and every advisor and each and every relationship? Um, in spite of our rapid growth and, and the sheer size of our platform, our people, and the, and the complexity within the business. And you know, Schwab has been able to remain very entrepreneurial uh, with, a, with a flat organization. It's very easy to navigate. Um, there are also very few hierarchical walls within Schwab. So as large as we've become, it's still um, very easy to get work done every day to collaborate on client solutions. And um, and the second aspect of the business in Schwab is philosophically we're aligned with advisors. Um, We put clients first. We are a market-driven organization, not a marketing organization, which to me means that um, we understand what clients want and need today and into the future, and we build that. And if we build discipline and scale and excellence into our model, well, we'll figure out a way to be profitable and make money doing that at the end of the day. So that uh, that remaining small and client first piece is the is the reason that I keep choosing to wake up and work here every day after 23 years. Great. I used to have breakfast overlooking the San Francisco Bay with um, an executive at your company, and he echoed similar comments. And I just want to check in with you uh, around what he said, which was, the industry as a whole seems to be migrating, particularly in the larger financial institutions, to a very specific advisor, one with a smaller book of business with high net worth and ultra high net worth clients. They're going to utilize multiple products and they're going to generate a lot of revenue for the firm. And he said that's that's not really the way that we think about the advisory space at Schwab. We think every advisor and every practice has a place here and is special. Do you see that uh, on a regular basis um, with the culture of your of of Schwab? I, I do, um, and what's kind of validating about hearing that from a number of years ago is, is you've had that experience in the past three years and continuing for the next couple of years. We are working on evolving our platform so that we can become more specialized for each constituency of advisors. We have an entire platform uh, with a service model, with people dedicated leadership and relationship management and service, um, as well as new and scalable value-added services like business consulting and other things I'm sure we'll get into later 
for advisors that have maybe $50 million with us. And we have almost 5,000 advisors with under $100 million in our platform. Um, our traditional advisor, which I think we'd call a practice, right? Um, uh, maybe budding on professional practice that may be two, 300 million up to about a billion. Um, that is our, our tradition, our bread and butter. And we continue to evolve our platform for those advisors. When you get above a billion dollars, and particularly into multi-billion, um, you know, we start to see some really dynamic changes within the structures of advisory businesses. And advisors go from a practice to a professional practice. And then when you have dedicated leadership, centralized back office operations, sometimes investment management, you start to see um, miniature enterprises and sometimes, quite frankly, many financial institutions emerge within the RAA space. And so we have dedicated um, leadership, relationship management, sales, and purpose-built value-added services for each of those different constituencies that I just described. And, and we are evolving to um, understand those differentiations more and find more pointed ways to serve each of those constituencies better into the future. So yeah, that, that is still part of our ethos and the way we think about the market. Got it. Thank you. How about you, Leslie? Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, background, and why uh, Charles Schwab is such a great place for you? Sure, sure. Happy to. Thanks for uh, having us, Austin. So, Leslie Tabor, I've been at Schwab for, gosh, in three days, it'll be 21 years. So, I started in the 90s, which doesn't make me old at all, but <laughs> started in the 90s uh, in the operations world at Schwab for the broker-dealer I moved around and built my career in that area and then ended up coming over to advisor services in 2015, specifically to, the, to lead the diversity program for advisors. And my role has grown to really leading any kind of program management consulting content around the topic of human capital, uh, cybersecurity, compliance, and regulatory. So as far as why it's a great place to work, I mean, uh, definitely it's people, um, I would say if I were to boil it down personally for me is, you know, I'm an Asian woman, first generation here in the U.S. My mom worked in San Francisco within financial services. I grew up, you know, uh, in the floor at her office coloring, <laughs> uh, waiting for her to waiting for her to get done with her, her work. Um, but as a first generation U.S. Um, person here, you know, all I grew up with was savings account. You know, my mom gave me a bunch of savings bonds when I left for college. And, you know, I literally maybe a month ago found out my parents had invested in life insurance policies for me. I didn't know anything about, about that and ultimately grew up not having any exposure to investing. And for me, one of the reasons why Schwab has been such a great place to work is, yes, they invest in me as uh, an employee, but they also invest in me as an investor. I feel like, you know, Schwab is on my side, right? In all aspects, from my development and progressing my career as a leader, um, in helping me to find a place within the culture at Schwab. It's very inclusive here, and I've done that uh, through participating in various employee resource groups, and also as a client, as an everyday investor, you know, teaching me about financial literacy and uh, helping me to build my own wealth and then helping me to bring those lessons forward to my own daughter, to my own family and to my extended family. I don't know how many times I tell my, my, my relatives and my cousins to, you know, Schwab stock slices are available now. And, you know, we need to be um, teaching our kids about, you know, investing, et cetera. So I would say that's part of, you know, my reasoning in, in regards to why Schwab has been such a great place to work. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. Sure. I want to stick on one point, and I know it's a little bit outside of the purview of the original question, but it's something that I think oftentimes is overlooked, particularly within the United States overall. I mean, I know that you mentioned your background and that perhaps maybe an allusion to the lack of financial literacy, but I don't see that at all. I think that here in the United States, across the board, there's a lack of real financial literacy. It's not taught in traditional education. It's, it's really something that needs to be handed down um, or learned on your own. So with, with all the education and the great things that you're doing and bringing it to your community, do you have any additional thoughts how 
um, yourself, an organization, or an organization like Dynasty could be a more active participant in the way in which we uh, perpetuate financial literacy within the United States? Oh my gosh, this could be a whole separate podcast, Austin. <laughs> and I'm going to try not to get on the soapbox here because it's definitely a, a passion of mine when it comes to financial literacy. I think from a Schwab perspective, it is one of the key pillars of the Schwab Foundation, which is headed by Carrie Schwab Pomerantz. And so, I mean, you could look her, look her up on LinkedIn and her feed is full of ways that individual investors, advisors, Schwab employees can contribute to uh, financial literacy from our school children all the way up to you know, adults and those getting ready for retirement, right? Financial literacy isn't just about one segment or one age group. It's throughout our lifetime. I think for, you know, your listeners, for Dynasty, um, get involved. I mean, I, would, I wouldn't doubt that there are people within your immediate community, whether it's the schools um, that you can reach out to, if you've got kids, maybe it's reaching out to your kids' schools and offering your expertise. I think your audience is definitely in a position to be a strong ally in this area and really offering your knowledge, your expertise to schools, to senior centers, communities, go to your local library, offer to host a class, right? I think there are ways to easily activate and quickly activate that doesn't involve a heavy lift and can, you know, not feel so burdensome because I know everybody is just so busy and time is, is, you know, so valued and it's a commodity, right, for each of us. So I think reaching out locally in your community um, is one way to activate and do something kind of at a personal level. It doesn't have to be a big project or a big effort. Got it. Thanks. Thanks. Sure. Yeah. Jerry, um, you know, when we were preparing for this podcast, what one of the things, there were many things, but one of the things that made me so excited was the diverse background and experience of each one of you. I mean, I'm first, you know, I, I, I didn't say it at the onset, but I'm very honored to have an opportunity to speak with, with all of you. And I thought that your background, as you explained it, was, was really cool. So I'd like to ask you the same question. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and why, personally for you, Charles Schwab is such a great place to work. Well, uh, you're very kind to call it cool, uh, Austin. <laughs> um, I think my uh, my credentials are probably the most suspect of anybody uh, on on this conversation. Um, I'm uh, I'm I'm the, the the newbie of the group, I guess. I've uh, just passed the uh, four year mark at Schwab, um, and uh, I like to say I'm a recovering journalist. Um, Got my start as a business writer and reporter for something called Financial News Network, which is later bought by CNBC, uh, where I went along for the ride and uh, became an on-air correspondent from the West Coast uh, for the network for 15 years. Um, I then uh, transitioned into business consulting, worked for five years at Colby, helping companies um, manage their human capital, optimize their talent using uh, Colby's suite of uh, talent management solutions. Later, um, I launched my own marketing and strategic communications uh, practice, uh, worked with some advisors in that role and other firms on uh, marketing, branding, media relations. Uh, I guess two other fun facts about my background. I've taught broadcast journalism at Arizona State University. Also uh, worked in government as uh, chief communications officer for the Maricopa County Prosecutor's Office here in Phoenix. Um, so I, I've, I've kind of had a, a like a widespread curiosity throughout my career, but it, it's sort of all, all aligns behind uh, uh, storytelling and uh, helping people be really the best versions of themselves. I think you know what's what's attracted me to Charles Schwab is. Um, you know, first of all, just kind of being immersed in the world of business journalism uh, sort of early in my career, I got a chance to see Schwab uh, in its early stages. Um, actually, ha pinned a microphone on, on, on Chuck himself when he came into the FNN studios in the mid 80s, uh, and I was a production assistant. But, you know, back then, Schwab was sort of this scrappy upstart um, view, viewed that way anyway. Uh, and to see 
the transformation that this organization has had over the ensuing years. I mean, listening to Brad describe, you know, the different types of advisors we serve, it's just um, amazing to see and uh, uh, and seeing the RIA model evolve over that uh, period. You know, I used to interview a lot of advisors when I was a reporter because they were always, <laughs> always available, always ready to give me a soundbite. And so really seeing that that model change and evolve uh, into um, into what it is today and, and Schwab's role in really helping nurture that model has just been amazing. I think um, the other thing that's really special about Schwab is we are really the only major financial services firm uh, whose brand and identity is, is, is tied to a real person. Um, I mean, Merrill, Lynch, Morgan, Stanley, those were all real people, but none of the firms that have their names really try to connect what they do to who those people were. But Schwab is different. And that's because we embody the values of a real person, someone who wanted to democratize investing, um, make uh, investing available to more people. Uh, the, the ultimate act of optimism is what he's called it. And I think that's also reflected in the support we've had for independent advisors, another way to make uh, investing available to more people. So I'm very proud to be part of those values and that story. And it's just, it's great to reconnect with this organization that I first encountered so early in my career when we were both uh, in, in completely different places. Um, so there you have it. Got it. I spent a lot of time, I still spend a lot of time studying, you know, psychology. And I think most people are familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And the subject of today's conversation is what it means to be a Schwabie and why that term, um, when heard by many people familiar with it, engenders certain feelings or um, makes people feel happy or a certain way. And when you think about the, the actual focus and intent of a company, um, oftentimes it's viewed, particularly in financial services, in a very quantitative way. What is the EBITDA? What is the net interest? What are our revenues? What are our expenses? What's quarter over quarter, year over year? Everyone gets the point. But if you think about what a company, particularly one in which many people spend a great majority of their life working for or working in, um, perhaps a company should be doing things that make their employees feel and are able to move up that hierarchy of needs from just feeling safe to feeling empowered to feeling good. So my question for you, Brad, is when you think about your organization, what are some of the conscious things that each one of you do as part of a larger collective and just the, the focus of the company overall that make or can make employees feel special to be a part of it? Yeah, you know, that's a really, you're kind of hitting on a really important point within the question. I was having a conversation with a uh, CEO of a large advisory firm the other day, and we were talking about the same thing, valuations of businesses. And we were agreeing that uh, the two uh, most important assets of the firm are a firm's clients and uh, a firm's staff. And early days when... Um, business valuations were being calculated by um, maybe the earliest consultants, like a Mark DeBersion, as an example. Um, there was a standard calculation, you know, use whatever model you want to, financial model to come up with a, um, a valuation of a firm. And then that, that firm was either given a premium or a discount depending on the quality of the clients and the sustainability of the clients, as well as the quality and sustainability of the staff. And those are intangibles that, um, again, at a premium or a discount to a, a firm's uh, overall valuation. We've kind of gotten away from that a little bit uh, as there's been more and more competition to buy firms in the marketplace. But it always does come back to people. You know, when you asked me earlier, you know, why Schwab? I didn't, I didn't say people, but that's probably the third reason is I, I wake up every day thinking, gosh, I get to go to work with my friends. Some of them I work for. Some of them work, you know, under air quotes for me, which actually means I work for them. Uh, and then, and then clients. Um, I, you know, some of my best friends I've developed through my client relationships, 
And, um, and so I want to say, you know, that Schwab has all these formal programs, and we do have some of those formal recognition programs. But because of the culture of Schwab, I think um, there's just a lot of informal recognition that comes from, number one, empowering people to do their job and be creative. And then number two, because people at Schwab generally like working together, when they see one of their colleagues who does something awesome, they find a way to, to recognize that maybe it's informally, but it's sometimes it's something as simple as an email. It's a, it's a you know, a, is there five minutes to the end of a conference call? I would just want to mention something that somebody did for a project, a program, uh, particularly when somebody does something great for a client. Um, and I personally find that that is the most um, uh, probably well-received form of recognition. It's the in the moment when somebody does something great. So what I personally do is I go out of my way anytime I see somebody either doing something that should be recognized and finding a way to create that recognition in the moment through those informal channels. Um, or when I get an email, a copy of something, of uh, somebody that has done something uh, extraordinary, I, I make myself slow down. We're all busy. We're all moving a million miles a minute, but I slow down in that moment. I read it. And if it is something that really does deserve some recognition, I make sure that person is almost embarrassed by the recognition that they get. Um, and, you know, it doesn't happen very often. I tell individuals who uh, want to work for the team that I get to lead, um, you know, you have to be comfortable with the fact that um, you'll know you've done something right when nobody says anything at all. It's a little bit of the nature of the business. And uh, I consciously try and, and turn that on its head as much as I can in my informal actions, which again, I think go a lot longer and further than any type of formal recognition program. So many good things in what you just said. I'll come back to your initial points around uh, having the opportunity to work with your friends. I mean, that that's that to me, at least from a dynasty perspective, is very similar. Mm -hmm. The opportunity to wake up every day and be with people that, one, you've known for a long time, potentially, but two, you know, if you really like them, if they're really your friends, that makes the job so much easier. And then you take it to that next level um, because of the type of client relationships that I know your team and, and our team have with our clients. I mean, I always say, um, when someone is a prospect, I tell them, you know, from the relationship management standpoint, we want to have relationships that are so strong that when the holidays come around, we're sending each other's cards. Yeah. And if you're able to do that, it's not just the business element that you'll be able to solve for. It's the human element, which is just as important in relationship management as the as the saying goes. Um, so I, I really appreciate uh, what you just said there. I guess my my second and follow-up question, what you said about acknowledging people in the moment, whether it's an email or within a large group and just, you know, telling people you did a good job, can you remember back to the first time which you saw someone else do that and therefore you kind of mimic that behavior or was that just something inherent that you always brought to the table? Um, well, it's hard uh, to remember back 23 years ago, it probably happened within the first week on, on the job. Right. Um, because like I said, it is fairly cultural or culturally embedded within Schwab to behave that way. Um, but I do remember early offsites. Um, there were there was a different head of sales, the, the person who's in the, the job that I'm in now, head of relationship management, um, who um, would spend the five minutes before each break at an offsite, reading a letter from a client about somebody in the room who had done something great for that client. Great idea. So over the course of, of two or three days together, you know, hold up in a room, you count the number of breaks and breaks for lunch and end of the day breaks. There were, you know, eight, 10 people who, you know, whose faces were turning red uh, with a little bit of embarrassment, but you know, they loved it, right? Um, and and uh, he went out of his way to, to work that into uh, an offsite agenda. And, and, you know, think about the impact of that, right? If I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, that is awesome that I work for a company that does that. And I can't wait till I do something for a client where, where a letter is read out about to, to this group about, um, about something that I did. And so it creates a little bit of healthy competition as well. Uh, it creates a cultural uh, a cultural norm to uh, serve clients in a certain way, and and again, if if it's if a leader is 
taking time at an offsite to do that, it just shows that um, from from a an ethos again perspective, that's just who we are as a firm and how we operate as as a group. And I think it carries on beyond the offsite. What a great idea! That is such a good idea, Jerry. What are some conscious things that uh, the company does to make employees feel special? Well, um, Brad mentioned uh, emails. We actually have a formal way of doing that. Uh, and I know other organizations have similar uh, processes, but we have a, uh, a send word email that one employee can send to another, um, to kind of call them out for something exemplary that they did. And um, their manager has copied on it as well. And uh, that is uh, that was the first exposure that I had to that part of our culture, that we actually have an institutionalized process for recognize, for employees to recognize each other. Um, I just thought it was a very powerful uh, and, and meaningful gesture in such a large organization to be singled out with an email, um, you know, calling me out for something good I did and, and my manager being able to see that. That was huge. And uh, I think the other way, just kind of to stick with the email theme, is um, similar to Brad's example, um, you know, I mean, managers within Schwab will will frequently send around an email to the larger team and even to the, the, the higher ups on the chain of command, um, uh, you know, where a client has really... Uh, uh, complimented us or expressed gratitude for something we've done. And it's just a great way to kind of share the the praise really with, with everyone and we all feel a part of it. So I think that that reinforced idea that an individual's success is really the organization's success is, is just so well uh, enforced, reinforced within, uh, within Schwab. Great. Leslie? Yeah, um, I'm going to come at it from a little bit of a different angle, and it is a way that conscious way that Schwab helps employees feel special is by allowing us to help others feel special. And so I come at it at an angle of community, right? So who doesn't feel good about doing good? And through our foundation, we organize company-wide across all locations um, a whole volunteer week where we work with several several hundreds of organizations across all uh, charitable organizations across all of our locations, and we are out on the street um, participating, uh, you know, a full day in contributing to that organization's um, objectives, goals, etc. So, for example, twenty one years at Schwab. I don't know how many volunteer weeks I participated in, but being able to go out and um, do a reality store, something we call a reality store with elementary school kids. And it's a group of Schwab folks. We all essentially are assigned a booth and each booth represents a life event, right? So the students go around to each booth. One booth is about purchasing a home. One booth is about getting purchasing a car but oh by the way you need car insurance right and and so the students you start to see real time the recognition that oh it's not just buying a car it's monthly payments it's you know insurance payments it's car repairs etc right um i've done you know planting gardens and different different types of volunteer events right and so that's one example through our community uh, program. And Schwab employees actually have the opportunity to be community ambassadors, right? So beyond just participating in the event itself, I can coordinate, you know, a group of 20 to 30 Schwabies to participate in a volunteer event that I have coordinated with a, a nonprofit or an organization, right? And you think about it, this is not just in my San Francisco Bay Area, this is across the country, right? And we celebrate that. We have it within our internal site, our intranet. We call it the Schweb. And within the Schweb, uh, you see pictures of us celebrating our giving back to the community, right? So I, I would say that's one way, another way to think about how Schwab makes its employees feel special is we get the opportunity to make others feel special and do good for others. In the strictest sense of Darwinism, 
there is no rational explanation for altruism. There's no rational explanation for humans as, a, you know, a type of animal to go out of their way to volunteer to help other individuals. And yet the research and the argument for it is just so strong around the feeling. Financial services, depending upon the institution that you're in and candidly the business line that you're in and back to the earlier conversation around metrics can be very cutthroat. It can be very um, black and white. It can be very winner and loser from a, from that type of scenario. Based on everything that you just said, Leslie, why is bringing in volunteerism, bringing in philanthropy, doing good things for others, even though there may not be any direct monetary response or um, impact important within organizations? Oh, gosh, um, I know we're going to touch on, on this a little bit later, but you know, I'll talk a little bit about it now. I think that it, it, can, it can be a differentiator in your culture, right? I think people have the natural inclination, and it's to your point, you know, financial services can be viewed as being so cutthroat. Um, but I think as people, I think there is an innate responsibility that people feel um, to help, to help each other. And when you work for a company that provides the opportunity to help and makes it easy for you to help, I don't have to reach out personally to the organization. I could just go through Schwab and I know that there is a specific week that is dedicated and Schwab is empowering me and going to pay me, right, for my time, but empowering me to give back. And I think for me, that personally feeds my, uh, feeds my soul. And I think that uh, people naturally have that. It might be subdued for some folks, but if, if you work in a company where that is such a pillar of who we are in terms of giving back to the community and, it, and you can connect to that, that starts to, I would, I would believe that for the individual, it starts to come up to the surface a little bit more year after year. And then you start to, you start to search for it. You start to look for it. And even beyond the opportunities that a company can afford you, that individual might take it upon themselves to, um, to, to find other opportunities to volunteer and to give back. Um, so I think, you know, I know we're going to touch on culture later in a little bit, but I think it's definitely part of what could differentiate a firm's culture to have a, an element of community um, built, in, built into the firm. Sure. I mean, that's, that's a good segue uh, to the, the question around culture. Many of our shared clients between uh, Dynasty and, and Charles Schwab are first-time business owners uh, and or operators. Many of them come from traditional financial institutions where um, even though rightly so, they don't see themselves in, as employees, technically they, they were uh, employees of those institutions and now they're business owners, entrepreneurs, operators of companies. And so Brad, I know that you spend a lot of time um, or at least I believe you spent a lot of time talking with principals of these firms around uh, the business organization. Um, but how critical to you is culture to business performance and why, why is culture so important if you believe it to be? Well, let's start with the, I think there's a truth that every firm has a culture. Um, it either is managed in a purposeful and thoughtful way or it's just the culture that organically grows within a firm if it's left unmanaged. And, you know, the interesting aspect of the advisory business is, you know, most advisors have a, a servant mentality. Um, they have a kind of a, a common point of view of doing the right things by their clients. And they know that there are many other businesses that they might be able to make a more personal income with their capital or with their intelligence or the combination of those two things, but they really enjoy um, serving wealthy families and, and doing right by them in a, particularly in the RA industry, in an unconflicted way. And so that, that I think, is why so many firms look similar um, culturally is because their culture has organically grown up in that environment but hasn't been 
purposefully managed. Um, culture, I think, can be a competitive advantage if it's carefully managed. If a firm has a long-term strategic plan of who they want to be, who their ideal client is, the types of uh, clients that they and families they want to serve, um, how they intend to operate internally, um, and then they consciously manage the culture, define what it is, create um, uh, distinct and, and differentiated core mission, purpose, values, operating principles. And they develop that with the employees of the firm and they get every employee aligned to believe and think and operate in a culturally significant and consistent way, um, then a lot, of, a lot of waste, a lot of um, stepping over each other, a lot of working against each other, quite frankly, disappears within an organization because intuitively the organization operates almost as a single brain. It's almost a single brain moving a single body in, in direct motion in a single, uh, in a single direction. And, and, and so um, I have noticed that those advisors, whether it's an individual advisor or a large advisory firm led by a CEO and dedicated leadership that have a, a cultural point of view about their business internally and how that externally feels to their clients and those are aligned, uh, seem to just um, operate more smoothly with less internal friction, politics. And, um, and in the long run, that allows those businesses to do something really, really important, which is to attract, retain, develop, and promote stable and talented people. And going back to this idea that the two most valuable assets of a firm are clients and staff, when you have that consistent staff over time that are all operating in a culturally aligned way and they all wake up every day excited to go to work, that creates a competitive advantage. I think that's where you connect this, this purposeful uh, cultural approach to a competitive advantage. Because again, because the people are so important to the client experience and to creating a competitive difference in the marketplace. I really liked uh, everything about what you just said, particularly the aspect of building culture purposefully, if that's the right word, hopefully I said that correctly, yeah. or having a um, intent, uh, a strong intention in the way that you do it. With that said, though, um, I have seen, I like to use like, it's really easy to write down these amazing goals that you want to achieve as a human being. Like one for me, I really want to learn to play the banjo. Now the reality is like, I'm not sure. Well, I have to believe that I can do that, but it's easier to write down that goal in the same way that it could be relatively easy to come up with these. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't say flowery, but uh, illustrious principles that a company is going to live by. So my question to you is, as you're going through, so to the listeners that are new business owners, entrepreneurs, or even it, it doesn't matter where you are in your life cycle, as you're thinking about building out uh, a culture in a purposeful manner, what are some of the things that you should look out for as potential roadblocks or uh, tripping points so that you're able to actually achieve what it is that you want to? Yeah, I think that the biggest um, roadblock, tripping point, or mistake that advisors might make is when the two or three or very small leadership team uh, gets together in a room by themselves and defines the purpose, the mission, the core values of the firm without the entire firm's input. Um, you know, the, the the culture exists um, if so, if it's if it's a a uh, remediation as an example, you know, the firm's been around for seven, 10, 15 years, and now we're trying to really define who we are. There's a culture that already exists. And so to step into a, a dark room and come out with uh, this is who we are, I mean, employees, they're going to see it. They're going to look at that and maybe they'll agree, maybe they won't. Um, so, so the first is including the entire organization. The second is it doesn't mean that now that you have it, you, um, have it laminated and you hang it in everybody's office and cube for them to look at. Right. Um, first of all, you have to believe it as a leader and you have to embody it. Um, you have to refer to it 
in difficult decisions where the group can't quite make a decision. They're arguing over um, two different answers. And, and if you point that situation back to purpose, mission, values, ideal client, whatever it is that is the elements that help define culture of the firm, um, then you start, the employees start to see that every decision is, is um, set up against a litmus test of that culture and of that purpose for the firm. And then it's holding people accountable when they're stepping outside of that. And it doesn't mean, you know, uh, I don't know how else to say it, but punishing people for stepping outside of cultural bounds, but stepping back and understanding from that individual why they have, um, understanding what created that behavior. Maybe it's something systemic in the business and not the individual themselves. And then working to bring that person back into line in a safe way. Now, certainly, if you have somebody over time who just isn't a cultural fit, they're great at their job and everything else they do, but they're not a cultural fit. It is so damaging to the business to not do something about that individual. You know, you may love them to death, but they might need to go. The longer you keep them around, the more you are complicit, the more you are telling every other employee that all that cultural stuff that we talk about, it doesn't matter because I allow this person to exist in our ecosystem. And they're in direct conflict of who we all agreed we were. So I think those are the three most um, important ways kind of thematically that you can drive culture within the firm. Great answer. That last part too, such a toughie, but also yeah. so true. So, so true. Yeah. Leslie, uh, what about you? What are your thoughts in terms of uh, how critical culture is to business performance? Yeah, I think um, you know, I mentioned that I think culture can be such a differentiator for your business, right? It's a motivator for why people want to work for you and with you, right? So it's to, to Brad's point, you know, being intentional it, about how it's a reflection of your firm's values what you believe in, what your why is as a firm. And the one thing I'll also point out is culture, it's an organic living thing because it is shaped by behavior. And people, you know, starting from leadership and the tone that is then set down shapes that behavior. And so little by little, every day as your firm, you know, continues to evolve, that behavior becomes your culture. Right, and you, people have probably heard, you know, the saying: "People don't leave jobs; they leave their managers." Right, and and so they're leaving managers based on behavior and the behavior, the, the resulting culture of that behavior. And and you know, when you think about what makes up your culture, is accessibility to leaders. Right? Do do we see our leaders engaging with employees at the firm? Right, or are they always just kind of in the office straight to their to their office closing the door and you know never really coming out and engaging right that sets a tone you know even something like attire right is it formal is it suit and tie every day business suits or is it a little bit more casual right that can set and and influence the culture um social kind of the social makeup in terms of networking and gathering uh, is a big part of it right now you know it, we're all for the most part, still working from home, and even leadership's uh, approach around the work from home capability can shape a culture. Right, the growth development opportunities, you know, diversity and inclusion, all of that is going to shape your culture. So, I think it's incredibly important that you know, as you think about your firm, how is culture shaping the behavior because it it feeds each other. Right, culture feeds behavior, and behavior feeds culture. I have a personal follow-up question because what you just laid out made me start to think about a bunch of different things. But the first is a statement and then, then I'll, I'll have the question. You know, I found personally as you go, as I have gone through my life, I will reflect back to the person or the leader that I was in a situation previously. And once I have enough distance from it, then I definitely realized that I made mistakes in that moment. So that's number one. But my question to you is, how important do you believe it is as an individual to have an element of authenticity to your personality to come through in a professional workplace? And how do you balance the friction, if there is any friction, in an environment which perhaps may not allow you really to be the way that you want to be only for the sake of um, it might not necessarily match up with the cultural norms of your institution. 
And I know that's fraught with a lot of like different avenues yeah. you go through for an answer. But right. if you get my drift of what I'm trying to ask, like obviously, you, you know, people act differently potentially in professional and personal environments. How do you get that authenticity through? Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't think nobody should ever force themselves to be disingenuine from who they are. And if ultimately there is, you know, you don't see yourself fitting into the culture or connecting to the why of a firm, then you do have to examine, is that something that is important enough to you that you would want to, you know, search elsewhere? You know, you should never force, you should never be disingenuous to yourself. Um, in terms of balancing, I, I would say in, in a large organization like Schwab, and I would suspect perhaps even in smaller organizations, there are microcultures, right? So it's not just there's the general culture of the firm, and then within my organization, there are microcultures, right? So within my team, we have our own kind of team culture. And personally, I, mean, I can only speak for myself, I have a hard time not being genuine and genuinely myself and very transparent I tend to I tend to lean more on the casual side and to some degree you know I, I think about has that has that been a barrier to my continued development as a leader at Schwab because I'm, I'm I can be casual right and what I mean by casual is you know I spent you know my team and I we always talk about kind of our personal lives and you know I don't I, I'm very comfortable with sharing, you know, who I am and what I do, what I've done, what I do with my family, et cetera. There's really no, I don't feel hesitant about sharing that. And, uh, you know, and I, my, my team feels the same way of, you know, share it's reciprocal. Right. And I think that's kind of the microculture I've created in my, in my team. Um, so it is a balancing act. Now, I, I wouldn't go into another team and immediately start to share any and everything about who I am, because again, there is that balancing act. You need to kind of feel out, okay, you know, I'm in a different organization or I'm in a different team. And I've done that every time I've moved around Schwab, just to get, get an understanding of how do people relate to each other on a personal level. We're, we're all professional and can get our job done, but we spend so much time at work that being able to be yourself and relate on a personal level is equally important, right? Um, so it's definitely a balancing act, really learning about how people operate um, and how teams kind of get together and then bringing forward what you're comfortable with, right? But again, I would go back to my first message, don't force it. Right. You've got to be conscious about making that decision as whether or not it's going to be a... Um, you know, are you adding to the culture or is it, you know, not working? For sure. Jerry, how about you? How critical do you think culture is to business performance? Oh, well, I think uh, it's uh, enormously important. Um, I mean, isn't it true that culture eats strategy for lunch, right? It, it, it all comes down to culture. Uh, I think I'll, I'll uh, maybe put on my consulting hat for a moment and you know, reflect on the 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 way we see um, firms really begin to get their arms around uh, culture. I mean, it usually happens once a firm has has sort of reached critical mass, a practice has reached critical mass as a going concern, and you know, you begin to add other people to the organization, and then suddenly it becomes a very important top of mind uh, issue. Um, you know, I think it, it's a struggle for advisors to really. Um, uh, define and even document their culture. You know, as Brad pointed out, sometimes it's just, uh, you know, some nice sounding words or, or phrases that are laminated and hung up on the wall. Um, you know, I think the way we work with advisors to really get them to focus on it is to really liken it to the journey we're all taking as individuals. I mean, we're all, we're, we all spend our lives really trying to answer a fundamental question, which is, who am I? And for an organization of people who are coming together to do something, it's really the same kind of process. Who are we as an organization? And that really breaks down to the, you know, the core questions we were just talking about a moment ago. You know, uh, why do we exist? What's our purpose as a firm? It's, it's not to make money. That's a result. 
Uh, and it, you know, there are lots of other things the people in a firm could be doing to make money other than being advisors. So why do we do this? What is the, you know, what is the true purpose of our, of our business? And then what do we believe in? What do we stand for? What are our core values that we'll never walk away from, even if it means leaving money on the table? Really identifying what those are and, and, and illustrating them with real examples, not just words. And then finally, where, where are we going? Big picture, long term. What's our vision? You know, likening it back to the individual's journey. We're all asked from our earliest age, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? That's the vision question for firms. So really tackling those, those three foundational pieces, you know, what we refer to as purpose, values, and vision, that to me is the first step for an advisory practice to define their culture and really begin to link it to business performance and goals and, and just the way we do things here. That's my sort of shorthand version of culture. That's just the way we do things here. So cool. So, so many good things within what you just said as well. I mean, all of you are coming up with a lot of tremendous thoughts. I, as you said, the, the important question that each individual ponders as they go through life and, and thinking about who am I, just I pictured a conference room where you're sitting around having a, a morning meeting with your team or with the organization. Maybe you're at a conference and you know the, the senior members of the organization are answering that question or attempting to answer that question for others like this is who we are as a company. These are the things that are important to us. Well, at the same time, um, you know, people in the conference room's chairs trying to figure out themselves, who am I and how do I fit into this organization? And then the confluence of those two questions coming together, I think based on all of your answers, if you're able to design a culture um, that is functional, that acts uh, back to, to Brad's imagery as, as a brain operating a body and moving in unison that allows each individual employee to have a better shot at answering that question, who am I? Because they're part of something that guides them at least structurally from how an organization answers that question. So all really, really interesting um, points of view. And I, I appreciate every single one of them. Austin, I want to just jump in for just a second. Absolutely. Go ahead. Hop in. Yeah. I'm just laughing right now because I'm sitting in my wife's office and um, she's a much smarter and, and incredibly much more insightful person than I am. And as you're saying that, those people sitting in a conference room, a leader saying, this is who we are, and somebody else saying, well, who am I? And do those things come together and meet in the middle? And I just looked up and there's a, a little um, saying that she has pasted to the wall here, which I've never noticed before. And it says, out beyond the ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. I will meet you there. Super cool. Yeah. I think that's a little bit of what we're talking about, which is you can't just define culture for the firm and employees need to be part of that, that process. And um, it's probably different from what both the employees and the leaders think. But if you sit down and work together, you'll, you'll meet them where it is. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, I'll ask each one of you one, one kind of final question. And it's one, it's a question that I think about a lot, particularly when, um, fortunately for me and probably all of us feel, may feel the same way. We get to meet a lot of really interesting, um, to your point, Brad, I always walk into rooms. I'm like, I'm clearly the, the least from a K level of intelligence standpoint here. So I'm just lucky to be surrounded by these individuals, but get to meet a lot of smart, interesting, fun people. And, um, I like to, you know, ask them this question, which is, um, What's one piece of advice that you would have given yourself? And the way I phrased it, as we know, when we went through this kind of prep was early in your career at Schwab, you could answer it that way, or you could just answer it, what's one piece of advice that would you would have given yourself early in your professional career, whichever one um, you want to answer. Why don't we start with Leslie for that one? Yeah, there's so many. If I had a tough, a tough time with this one, just narrowing it down. So I would say, um, you know, I started at Schwab while I was going to school. I was finishing up my college um, path and I started as an admin. And, you know, as an admin, you're essentially an order taker. You, you execute. You do what other people say and you're a people pleaser. I mean, those are all good things. I feel like I just made it sound like they weren't good things, but um, I feel like that shaped a lot of my initial behavior. And as I progressed my career, um, some of that continued to stay, you know, continued on. And what I would tell myself now, my younger self is learn how to say no <laughs> or, or pause 
and prioritize or say no, right? And and don't don't always feel the need to say yes, um, and and you know ask questions and challenge. So those you know keeping it short here and giving enough time for my colleagues to share their their one piece of advice too. That's where I would I would focus in on. Okay, Brad. Well, you know, um, Jerry said it earlier. From early on, you know, we all. Um, are asked so often, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? Who do you want to be? And and um, the answer is, I don't know if you ever really know. Um, and, you know, you're going to start a career early on and you're going to have this idea and you, you're going to build these plans, you've got this vision of the future, and you're going to try to control the world around you to, to deliver yourself to that future. And... Um, you know, I, I probably count myself as dodging a lot of bullets and very fortunate because, you know, I defined a future that looked pretty similar to what it is now, and um, and I really like it here. I know a lot of people who define a future very similar to where they are now, and they don't like it there. Um, so I, I would consider myself lucky, but it might not happen for, for everybody. And so, you know, the early on, the importance of not being locked into a set of ideas, you know, um, be intellectually curious, work really hard, take on assignments, ask for more work, and don't have a stovepipe mentality of your career. You know, this for two to three years and that for two to three years and kind of all leads to this culmination of now I've arrived. Um, explore, you know, do the Australian thing and go on walkabout within the business that you work in. If you're fortunate enough to work for a large enough organization where there are multiple roles you can take on earlier in your career. Because what you'll find is you're good at certain things and you love doing certain things. And then eventually you'll find something that you're really good at and that you love. And, and then, then your career is off to the races. And it's not because you worked really hard or you had the right credentials. It's because you have this collision of passion and skill that makes you unstoppable. And um, sometimes if you, if you focus too much on a defined outcome, um, you'll miss that train. So again, so deep. I love it. And and I was fist bumping in the background when you said uh, you use the term intellectual curiosity. It's one of my yeah. my bigger mantras to our team, which is have that. Like, yeah. I just I I personally just in in general could never suggest something that I didn't at least know more than just a little bit about. Like oftentimes in our roles, we're asked to like provide guidance and advice on, um, it could be a technology, it could be a business development strategy, it could be any number of different things. And I think part of what makes a, a consultant or an advisor really good is that you actually get in deep. You have that intellectual curiosity to ask questions and to study and to try to learn something. So then when you represent your advice or your opinion you actually i mean it seems simple but it doesn't always play out this way that you have like actual depth and factual and operational knowledge behind your recommendation yeah. which is just so critical i start interviews with candidates whether they're for me or i'm interviewing for somebody else with what questions do you have for me that defines me really quickly whether or not somebody has thought about this they're intellectually curious they're here to figure out what's what's going on at Schwab or for this role. And sometimes those interviews are over very quickly and sometimes they're scheduled for 30 minutes. And if it's a great start, I'll go an hour and a half. I'll go two hours if the conversation is good. Cool. Jerry. Well, I think uh, I, I'm, I still think of myself as new at Schwab, so <laughs> I guess I'm giving myself the advice you're asking for right now, uh, which is advice that somebody gave me a long time ago and advice that I've tried to pass on uh, to younger folks as well, which is, you know, always try to staple yourself to the smartest person in the room and share the answers you get with everyone else in the class. And I don't mean violate the academic code. Uh, I mean, really um, pay it forward and pull up the other person on the rope behind you. And uh, I think, you know, Schwab is a place that's really built on that uh, in part. And there are so many smart people in this organization that I, it's hard to know which one to staple myself to. I learn so much uh, from the people I work with, and uh, that's what fulfills me as uh, as a lifelong learner. Every single piece of advice that each one of you gave is um, 
really powerful and very relevant. So I appreciate it. I appreciate all of your time. Thank you very much for um, agreeing to, to spend, uh, you know, a couple hours with me. And um, again, thank you very much. It's been uh, very insightful to me. And clearly, uh, the meaning of Schwab, of the term Schwabi is evident after speaking to each one of you. So thanks again. Thanks, Austin. Thanks, Austin. Thank you for listening to the Powering Independence podcast. Uh, special thanks to all our guests for participating. Hope uh, the listeners found this to be insightful and something that you could use as you navigate through uh, the cultural elements of your firm. I also want to call attention to the month of October, which is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and dedicate this podcast to one of our employees at Dynasty, one of our family members, Amanda Curley, uh, who is currently engaged in a fight against cancer, and to anyone that's been impacted by uh, breast cancer, um, we want to dedicate this podcast to you. Thank you.